Okay, everyone, welcome to episode eight of The Great Divide. This is Tom Kirchival from America here with Spine Korthug from Norway. And we have a special guest with us here today in the palatial American studios of The Great Divide podcast. And he is a, a big country fan that you guys probably know or are aware of. And if, if not by name, then you've certainly hopefully seen his site, which is uh, bigcountryinfo.com. And it's an amazing, amazing website full of great stuff and anything you can imagine with big country information. I mean, that's a place to go. And in case you haven't figured it out by now, his name is John Guvea, and he is actually joining us today to talk about the things that we are going to discuss. So, John, hello. Hello there, Tom. <laughs> hello there, Svein. Hello. Yeah, hello, Svein, too. So um, we're going to be talking a lot today about uh, basically the period after Stewart's passing and the types of things that uh, the band members got involved in musically and leading up to the, the, the place that Big Country is at today and with Mike Peters and talking about everything they're doing now. So this episode is going to be talking pretty much about everything that happened after Stuart passed away up until the present. And uh, Swine, I'll let you take it from there and kind of set us up for where we're going to go from that point. Yeah, uh, the thought was always to do a show about the band today, and we thought we really have to set the stage here with uh, what we refer to as the barren years, which we mean the years after Stuart, Stuart died, and uh, leading up to when Mike and Jamie joined the band. Uh, so we started looking at this period, which is a very interesting period, lots of solo projects, and as we started mapping it out, we discovered this, these years were not barren years, they were anything but. So we referred to this episode as the non-barren barren years episode, uh, which is the years 2002 to 2010. And uh, we are very happy to have John here. He uh, followed the band quite closely through these years and uh, has a lot of information, inside info. He's up to speed on the releases. Tom and I have had a heck of a job trying to listen through and catching up. And we're probably not even done with that, Tom. No, we're not. Not at all. Not 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 even close. Yeah, a lot of material. So take notes, guys. There's a lot of stuff to uh, to pick up and catch up on. So you might discover some releases as well during this episode. So uh, this episode really starts with uh, Stuart's death, which is uh, obviously a very hard thing to talk about. And uh, for for me, going back to when it happened, um, I sort of disappeared from the scene completely. Uh, and only recently I went back and read posts made by fans on the original mailing list uh, that happened in December 2001, where Stuart was missing for a while and eventually the news broke. And uh, uh, a lot of people shared the reactions, how they felt about it. Uh, other people disappeared, uh, felt uncomfortable doing so. And uh, I'm one of those who I, I really couldn't cope. I, I certainly couldn't discuss it. It was somehow far too deep for me to... Uh, to go in and touch it and uh, didn't, didn't really know how I felt. It took years for me to come to terms with it. Whereas um, Tom was out there posting and uh, quite lovely posts, uh, I, I have to say. But uh, that was something I couldn't do. So, I wish I could remember them. <laughs> well, they're up there still. You can go back and read them if you want to. Uh, but I thought the show, uh, obviously it starts with that and we're not going to dwell on it. But uh, I thought maybe we could share our own reflections on how he felt about uh, Stuart's death when, when, when those news broke. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, John, you want to go first? Take it from there? Well, yeah, I, I, I remember it. Uh, it you know, Stuart had, had gone missing, and 
you know, he had gone missing just previous to that. And of course, you know, he obviously had reappeared. And so at that time, you know, he got missing. My, my thought was, oh, you know, he's just, you know, he's just about and, you know, he'll he'll make his presence known sooner enough right. and uh, you know and we'll move on from there and then you know when the news came that you know that he had passed i was like wow it's like wow I, I can't believe this and 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 um one of the you know first things i did was you know just just scouring the internet just 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 seeing you know uh confirmation from different news agencies and you know just so okay is this really true yeah and then after yeah. that just uh just seeing the reaction from people Posting at the on, on the bulletin board at the time and just kind of commiserating with each other, just 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 kind of like kind of trying to come to grips with it. Yeah, you know, and then you know, were you one of the people who couldn't listen to the music for a while, or did you did you have that reaction, or did you? No, kind of... I, you know, I I think I probably listened to it even more because mm. it, it's just like you know, I, I was trying to make sense of it and you know, just trying to listen to listen to the music and try to get some insight, you know, some hidden insights like okay, well, you know. I mean, did we did we miss something? I mean, right. You know, did, you know, was there something there we should have seen? You know, and and basically that's kind of how I dealt with it at at the time. Yeah, exactly. I, it's interesting because it's like people people seem to fall in two camps. Well, two more clear camps to me. Like there were there are some who were like you who, you know, went right back to the music and listened to it and took comfort in that. And there are some who were like Spine who just kind of divorced themselves from the whole thing. And I guess I was probably more like spine even though i was writing these posts it's like it was a long time before i could really listen to them again i mean it was very painful to listen to them again because they i was so shocked by the fact that stewart took his life first of all i mean i i knew that he struggled with alcoholism and i knew that he was experiencing that struggle again but i remember the first time that he disappeared and we talked about this before it's like um it turned out to be at least the way he put it was, it seemed more like um, just a miscommunication because yeah, Stewart and and, and, yeah. and you and you know there was nothing to think otherwise. Uh, you know, this this last time, it's like oh you know he, uh, right he's he'll be back and right he wasn't and and Swine reminded me last time we talked that the only things that were maybe a little different this time were you know we were getting the reports from those Raphael shows where he was turning up in bad shape and then we saw the picture of him with the dyed blonde hair and like the cut lip it looked like he had fallen or something and so that maybe there was a little more there but you know having met the guy and spent a little bit of time with him i mean and then of course you know you can look at his music in retrospect and see the darkness in it but you still kind of always associate him with the stay alive mentality right. so it was it was tough to it was tough tough to wrap my head around so yeah it was a long time before i could really listen to them out of an enjoyment again and I finally cut pretty much back to that that space, um, but uh, me too. Uh, you know, we wouldn't be here if we didn't come back to it. But uh, yeah. it, it took uh, quite a few years. And uh, if I'm going to be brutally honest, there were some really dark years where big country music was death music, especially the Drive to Damascus stuff. I really couldn't, and that sounds incredibly harsh, but I can't even begin to to tell how how I felt when when it just hit me. It was. It was horrible, horrible, and uh, uh, we're not going to dwell on that. But really, this illustrates, you know, how diverse the feelings were among the fans, and how how hard we felt, and how intensely we felt. Like, um, you know, it's a it, it, at the end of the day, and this might sound a bit, you know, cold, but it's a pop star. 
<laughs> so and and he dies. He's not your father or mother, but uh, we have that same feeling. Like it could have been your father. It could have been your mother. It's uh, it felt so so close. Yeah, and it's because the that's the effect you know that they had on so many of us who discovered the band when we were teenagers. I mean, they became like our voice, and and Stewart's music became so much. Probably to some people, it was closer to them than a mother or father in some ways. I mean. I know for me it was it was I wouldn't say that about my own experience, but it was certainly a, a guiding force and a shaping force for me in a lot of ways. So yeah, I mean to have that well poisoned, and that's kind of how I viewed it as like that well of of joy that was in my life was was poisoned by what happened. But, yeah, uh, and uh, now we're, we've been talking about this from our perspective, which really is the fan perspective. But uh, there's also the perspective of the guys who were left in a band. Tony Bruce, Tony, uh, Tony Bruce, Mark, um, and how they coped with it, and I think that colors a lot of the years we're going to discuss the so-called non-barren barren years. Uh, I think we see all kinds of reaction there as well. You know, we talked about you know some people die straight into it, some uh, others run for the hills and uh, become invisible, and I think more or less we we can place the guys in big country there, and uh, I think we'll, we'll we'll just start on the timeline and just see how it plays out. And uh, if we start in 2002, you know, obviously, months and months of, of shock and what now, really, what now? Um, and the first what now is uh, Stewart's memorial show, which was in Barrowlands, May 31st, 2002. Uh, I sit here with the program of that event. But before we look at that, um, uh, John, you were not there, were you? I was not. No. Uh, but uh, a lot of guys. One, one of the few shows he was not in attendance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but but a lot of fans were there. A lot of people were there. And uh, one of the things that has been debated after uh, afterwards was really, you know, it was recorded. Should it be released? Shouldn't it be released? And what are you guys' opinions on that? I personally used to think that it was something I really didn't want to relive in in some sort of uh, official release, but I've only recently discovered, and part of it was talking with you guys, that I I kind of had the wrong idea of what it was because there were a couple of different elements, well, things there, well, right? I, I I think the the tenor of the of the show was more it it wasn't. It wasn't. It was more celebratory, wasn't yeah, it? it was yeah, a cel- it was a celebration of, of 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 his life, not a celebration of his death. So right. it, it kind of, you know, that that's it seemed to be more of a more of a, a, a joyous occasion, you know, just just, just you know, saying you know, just uh, putting out there everything that everything that he had done for everyone. Yeah, because I always took that for some reason. I always would thought of it as something that was really uh, in step with the funeral service or something like it happened around the same time, but. They there really were a couple no, months I mean, apart. In front of the yeah, I mean, from, yeah. from the people that I spoke with that were there, it was you know far from far from uh, a funeral service. It okay, was, it, was, it was celebration. That's good. I mean, well, I mean, with that in, in mind, I, I probably wouldn't mind hearing it. I mean, um, from a, stor- a historical perspective, it might be interesting to hear. But um, yeah, for whatever reason, I mean, I think it was recorded, if I'm not mistaken, but. For for whatever reason, it's never been released. I mean, I don't know if it's uh, the family really doesn't want to release it or or what. But I, I think there's there's been like several different stories about why it hasn't been been released. Uh, to be honest with you, they're they're so varied. It's kind of it's kind of difficult to tell at this point. <laughs> yeah. you know, what you know what is uh, what is the truth? The, the fact of the matter is, it doesn't really matter. It's just the fact that it hasn't been released. So yeah, yeah that's where we are now. 
Shot! There were some definite big things that happened there that were kind of the seeds for things that would happen later. I mean, you know, I, I know that the, the Katrina event and the re- release of The Saints Are Coming was the major thing that got the skids to reunite. But, you know, this was, the, this was a big deal to have the skids get back together in the form that they, you know, got back together, obviously, without Stewart and perform on the same stage for the first time in years. And then I know Bruce behind the scenes was incredibly instrumental in, in sort of conducting this whole service as far as he, as you pointed out last time, fine. He played with almost every act that was at the, that was performing. Is that, that's correct, right? Uh, he, he was pretty much uh, in every lineup. And if you look at the lineup, uh, starting with the Billy Sloan introduction, then you have Run Rig. Featuring Bruce Watson and uh, Kirsten Adamson also, as both of the Adamson uh, kids performed here and there, which uh, which is really poignant. Uh, you have Deadman Walking, which is obviously Mike and Bruce, Glenn Matlock and, uh, and those guys. Uh, you have the Vibrators, uh, featuring Bruce Watson. You have On the Air, which uh, also <laughs> features Bruce Watson. Uh, as we know. Uh, that's Mark and Tony's pre-Big Country band. So Simon Townsend, Mark Tony, Bruce, and Callum Adamson, and Mike Peters. So that's quite a lineup. Uh, so I, I would love to see those, uh, especially. Would, would be really good. Uh, Bill Nelson plays, um, and uh, the, the skits, of course. Richard Jobson, Bill Simpson, Bill Bailey, Rusty Egan, and Bruce Watson featuring Kirsten Adamson. Uh, the Conrads, which is... I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's a... A regular band. I, I've never heard of them. But it features Phillips, Damon Hill, Mark Brusecki, Steve Brusecki. Um, strangely enough, not Bruce. <laughs> but uh, Tony played a solo acoustic song, the Kosovo song. And uh, in the end, there's the whole Stuart tribute uh, hodgepodge uh, band featuring Josh Phillips, Kirsten Nelson, Callum Edison, Tony, Mark, Bruce, Josh Phillips, and Run Rig. And then a final featuring everybody. So uh, really, a special lineup. Uh, I um, I think they, uh, fr- from the looks of this, you know, they, they might have gotten more name people, but in terms of people who were involved with Big Country and with Stuart, I think uh, it, it's really well put together. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought so too. And uh, yeah, it was a good lineup. And it, one thing about um, just to say, Bill Nelson, he did a really uh, maybe we'll play a, a brief bit of it, but he, he he was the only guy I think who actually wrote something specifically for this performance, and that was an instrumental that he did called For Stewart. Okay, this guy is understandably a bit nervous. He's heard about the Barland reputation. He was in a band who were idolized by Stuart and the guy in the skids. The band were called Bebop Deluxe. And one of Stuart's fondest memories and biggest thrills is when Bill Nelson came on stage with the band at Edinburgh Odeon and played a great song called Panic in the World, which was part of the skid set. He hasn't played a gig in Scotland for 25 years. He breaks his duck tonight. Will you raise the roof of Barland for the legendary Bill Nelson? It's a hell of a time since I've been in Glasgow playing. And it's quite a while since I've been out playing live anyway. Four, four years ago, I think, the last time. I could talk for a long time about my memories of Stuart, but all I want to say is that 
He was one of the sweetest guys I ever had the pleasure to work with, and I was very proud to be involved with him, and I'm proud to be here tonight. But yeah, it was a it was a great show and a great way to send off and and kind of launch us into you know the next period. Yeah, whatever that was meant to be, because uh, there were some statements ahead of the show, and uh, I'm thinking of Tony in particular saying this uh, will bring closure, uh, um, put an end to it. So, you know, w- w- with 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 some ends there comes new beginnings, and uh, I don't know what that was meant to be for Tony, but uh, shortly thereafter in June he released the Acoustica CD. Uh, which includes the personal memorial for, for Stuart, a song called Dream Boy. Isn't it a shame when a man loses all direction? Ain't it just a way to lose your soul? Isn't it a shame when your love won't make a connection And you've seen love on a better day Your wasted dreams and broken heart Those never ends and started starts Your star that shone so high and free The glory days that let you be Dream boy Cried for his world at my window Dream boy He laughed at my world by my window But they both look the same um, But, uh, you know, the, a, a quiet release It just appeared more or less on his website uh, i don't know if it was heavily promoted or anything like that so uh, if you happened to notice it uh, like i happened to notice it i don't know why because i really wasn't paying that much attention to stuff but uh, for some reason i became aware of a couple of tony things i think i ordered them from his site just before they disappeared without a trace and never to resurface again uh, so um the Acoustica CD, and um, then really a, a period of quietness follows for the rest of 2002, until, strangely enough, the thing that nobody thought they would see at that point, a big country convention in Zandam, Netherlands, featuring the entire band. And um, John has the backstory to how that fan convention happened. 
well, I don't have a complete story, but uh, okay. it was the uh, brainchild of a local fan from from the area of Zendem, Peter Hornberg. Mm-hmm. I remember um, that name. Not exactly sure how he managed it, but he managed to get everybody everybody uh, on the same page and <laughs> got them, got them there to play in Zendem and brought along a special friend uh, that uh, you know late you know some years later came a. Uh, he may say to the band, and we know who we're talking about. <laughs> That's right. A lot of interesting performances. We, we played on one of the podcasts in the past. We played their version of Eastworld with Mike Peters, and I think they did. What else? Do you know what else they did? I think they did Never Take Your Place and a couple other big country they tunes. They played Normal. They played Normal. Yeah, yes. that's right. Okay, this is uh, another song I don't think. Um, I think we'll have a little quiz. I'm going to test the band out now. Which... Uh, this next song, they know what we're playing, but which song was it the B-side of? Fuck <laughs> Hard Day's Night. <laughs> yeah, what was it the B-side of? <laughs> Does anyone out there know what it was the B-side of? Yeah, it's called Normal. <laughs> oh, here we go, this is called Normal. Very interesting. 
yeah, the, the good, a good B-side. Um, yeah, so, I mean, and, and also, you know, if you haven't seen or heard any anything from this, one of the highlights, for me at least, was um, Mark Brzecki doing kind of a, a mini drum clinic where he would play some of his, his most classic big country drum parts, including uh, one of my favorites of all time, the, the intro to Tall Ships Go. And that's a song that, you know, a lot of fans, it's, it's often in their dream set list. You, you often see Tall Ships Go in the dream set list. So this is as close as we've ever gotten to a live version of Tall Ships Go was, was just Mark playing the drums to that. I think I'll play a Tall Ships Go. Who remembers that one? <laughs> of you know wanting to know how it all happened you know who who thought of mike peters because this is you know he, he was at the um, at the memorial show and now he appears here and actually plays with the guys and he plays big country songs with the guys and uh, i can only think that as this convention was in the netherlands where big country toured in 99 2000 and mike peters opened for them uh, maybe there was a friendship forged maybe there just was a contact you know maybe uh, he went by Mike and said, Mike, can you get the guys to come here to a convention? And maybe Mike took it upon himself. You know, he, he's such an unstoppable force. And <laughs> I, I wouldn't keep it past him. So, so it's just interesting how Mike ended up with the guys. But uh, that's definitely uh, a very key moment in uh, Big Country's timeline. That, uh, I'm, sure he didn't meet, I'm sure he didn't need much convincing. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you, John, if you had any insight into that, because I know that I know that he, you know, as, as Fine said, he opened for the band on their final Fling tour, and, and he had a friendship with him even before that. So, I mean, did, do you think that that experience, like, drew him closer to the, the band before, when he opened for them on that final I, Fling? I, I think, I, from what, you know, from what I've read and from what I've heard, Mike was, you know, always been a big Stuart Adamson fan. And, and, you know, even on the latest set of Big Country shows uh, and so some of uh, his, his solo gigs, he'll, he'll talk about his relationship with Stuart Adamson and, and the band and and um the one thing he mentioned i forget what, what show was that is that was that um on the encore of the final fling uh, it's not on the dvd but if it's out there and as they say it's out there in cyberspace if you, if you, if you look <laughs> for it uh the encore of the final final fling show at, at the barrowlands and uh mike's on stage with the band and they're playing "Rockin' in, in the Free World," which is again a, a song that the Alarm also played. That's right, that's right. And the one thing that in, in, in Mike had mentioned in one of the shows, and he didn't notice it at the time, but during that show, Stuart Adamson is wearing a Mike Peters T-shirt, and wow. and you know, uh, you know, he <laughs> that's just, cool. just just you know, look, you know, again looking back at it uh, 11, 12 years later, and just noticing for the first time, wow, something that was occurring right next to you, and. You know, it seemed to be awestruck. I mean, that, that, if, if nothing else, when you go to a big country show now uh, and, you know, listen, listen to Mike, uh, he has the utmost respect for the memory of Stuart Adamson. Yeah. And it, it's it, it's it's almost like, you know, uh, like a 
like a fan living living at his own dream. Like you know, mm-hmm. I'm a great, I'm such a great fan of Big Country, and I got and I got to sing with him too. And that's the kind of that's the kind of aura that he 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 gives on stage. So, yeah. You know, again, if if I know there are a lot of naysayers out there, uh, but you know, give it a chance if you. You know, you gotta go. You gotta go see him live, and I'm I'm, I'm sure you'll be convinced. But uh, I, I digress by jumping forward to uh, no, the latest iteration. But we were really more discussing, you know, the first time that uh, you know Mike Mike played with the band, and you know, even from that show, there's you know, which we'll get into uh, a close relationship between Mike and and the remaining members of Big Country. You no, know, I think that's a great point because um, you know, even if you jumped ahead a little bit, the fact that Stuart wore a Mike Peters T-shirt showed you how Stewart felt about him too, yes. you know, cause he, he doesn't do things. He didn't do things just for show. I mean, if he did something, he meant it. And you know, to anyone who doesn't know, probably most people know this story because it's very common, but, um, you know, Mike and Stewart, uh, go all the way back to the 1983 when they first started. And they probably met before this event, but I know that there's a story of Bono, uh, bringing Stewart up yes. to sing and, with. And, and yes, I think that how the story goes, people like kind of put them on their, on their shoulders and they carried him on yeah. the stage. Exactly. So and I'd and love the, to see some video of that. I, I, I think the audio of that exists. I've heard it. Um, yeah. I, I've heard it. I'll have to find that. Um, I can't promise I'll find it in time to put it on the show, but I know it exists someplace, but, uh, they, the three of them sang knocking on heaven's door at a U2 concert. And this was when, you know, U2, Big Country, and The Alarm were on even ground, really. And before U2 took off into the stratosphere and the other guys you know, struggled a little bit as far as mainstream acceptance. But so their relationship goes way back. And, uh, yeah, I mean, t- and so to see him come into to Zandam, I think every I remember what I was thinking at the time when I saw that, like, hey, Mike would be a good choice if they ever if they ever go on, if they ever do something. Mike, you know, would probably be the best choice yeah. next to me. They never asked me, but uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, they, they needed uh, someone with uh, 100% sincerity and uh, and honesty that, that could bring some of the same values to the band that Stuart had. Uh, there are very few people with those qualities, and Mike is definitely one of them. And I think the, the thing that always in my head spoke against it being Mike was that he is so incredibly busy. He works all the time. He has so many projects, and I couldn't really see him putting aside months at a time to do a big country. I, I just couldn't. But of course, now he has, and he's just relentless. He works even harder at the alarm in his solo career when he has time for that, and gives a, a thousand percent when he's with big country. So uh, I, I think that man is a force of nature. Yeah. Uh, he he's uh, he's never he don't he stops like mean, whether it's big country whether it's the alarm and whether it's uh, you know all the the charity work that he does he the the man has a full plate. Well, let me ask you this, John. I mean, since you were there, I mean, what what was like the fan? What was the what kind of crowd was there, and, and how were they were like really receptive to the big country with Mike Peters playing, or was it were they tentative? Was it like more celebratory? I mean. I'm just curious what the vibe well, was. Well, you know what they, I think it kind of, it it it, uh, it it kind of it kind of varied. Uh, you know, there again, I mean, maybe there were, there were some people there who had some had some insight we didn't have yet. It's like, oh, is this is this going to be something permanent? I mean, they were pretty clear at the time that no, oh, this is this is a one-off, or you know, this is just ju- just for this. But right. of course, you know, there were you know, people there, both uh, 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 alarm fans and big country fans, like, oh, this this would be great if they worked together. Uh, so there 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 was. There was that. Uh, I think from you know the people that I spoke with, you know before the show, uh, you know it was kind of uh, 
you know, they say the fear of the unknown. You're like, mm-hmm. what's, what's this going to be like? Gee, I, I hope it's good because I'd like it to continue. And uh, again, it, it was, you know, these, one of these shows that was, yes, obviously a remembrance, but is also, you know, was something you could uh, look, you know, something looking forward. You know, what, you know, what, what, what could be? Right. And obviously now we know, we know that. Right. And did, didn't Stewart like suggest Mike Peters? I've, I've heard the story that when he was going to leave the band toward the end, he, he wanted them to continue. And he even suggested Mike Peters should be the guy. I've, I've heard that. No, I haven't heard that. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just, uh, you know. Have you heard that's fine? Yeah, that was uh, reported. And it actually came from Mike Peters. Mike Peters talked about it. And uh, he was quite public about it. Uh, so that's definitely the case. That definitely happened. Shot! So, John, I mean, you were at the Xandom show, and that's pretty much the first time that you met Bruce. Is that correct? Well, it wasn't at the Zandam show per se it was pretty much after the Zandam show now okay. i um again this was the first time that i had traveled far and wide for anything big country related you know little that i know at the time that it would be kind of a bi-monthly occurrence <laughs> but um yeah every gig that we talk about from this point forward john has attended so I'll just keep that in mind that. um <laughs> but again i mean i you know flown in flown into the netherlands and and i was went to the show and i was you know severely severely jet lagged after the gig you know i just you know i met a lot of great big country fans there at the gig and you know just like you know, this, this is you know kind of a surreal experience and yeah so you know but ah, I'm, I'm kind of tired so i mean i go back to, i go back to the hotel and um you know i'm in my in, in my room for a while watching uh, dutch tv and trying to make make sense of it all <laughs> uh you know I'm, you know I'm just like okay i'm getting a little hungry now so you know so i this is a couple hours after the show, so I go down to the lobby and uh, to the hotel restaurant, and lo and behold, there's the whole lobby is like packed with people, including including the band. I was like, oh my, you know. <laughs> so and that was kind of the you know that was you know how how I got to meet uh, everybody in the band. And was Mike there as well? Mike Mike was there. Uh, okay. you know, yeah, yeah, Mike was there. Uh, it's great. You know, and <laughs> and it's just. It, it, Again, you know, here, here it was. I mean, let me let me count on my fingers how old I was at the time. But obviously, I was old enough, old enough to, to not act like a like a little kid. Let's just say that. Right. <laughs> but that didn't stop me. And it's like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. And, 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 and you know, you, you, you try to you, know, you try to put on a good game face, like you know, hello there. You know, just, and, <laughs> yeah. But uh, didn't work. And, I, and I'm sure, and I'm and I'm sure I came off just just like you know, as a, as as you know as a. Yeah, you know, starstruck fan at the time, and, right. and, and just like, oh my God, Bruce, oh I love, I love your music so much. Oh my God, Tony, oh my God. and and yeah, you know, uh, don't feel bad. We've all been there. <laughs> I, I, I know, I know, but yeah, you know, just like like everything else, you you look back a couple years later, it's like, oh, I don't believe I acted like that. Mike and Bruce uh, didn't waste too much time. In 2003, they worked together at least twice. Uh, the first of them being Dead Man Walking. Who was in that band? I know Glenn Matlock, Mike, Bruce. Was it Slim Jim Phantom? Slim Jim Phantom from the Stray Cats, the yes. drummer. Yep. And uh, was was Bruce Foxton in that? No, no, I was, that was uh, okay. Casbah Club. Okay. For me, at, around this time, I mean, all of these things that they were doing, I viewed nothing more than a curiosity. I mean, there was nothing that was done that I thought, oh, this is great. I've got to go out and buy this CD if they're releasing something or – you know, this is something I really want to. It was just like, oh, I'm glad Bruce is doing stuff again. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of the, I, I think, you know, not just so much for for Bruce, for any, any everybody else that was in, in yeah. Dead Dead Men Walking. This was like, you know, 
bunch of bunch of guys getting together, having yeah. a jam session, having fun with it. I mean, yeah. You know, and then and you know nothing wrong with that. Exactly. Here we go! Yeah, okay, so to, just to round up 2003, uh, Mike and Bruce played also the Alarms document, and I believe that was released as Rock and Roll International Volume 1, with Volume 2 following the next year. And um, uh, I think it was marketed as the Alarm versus Big Country, and they alternated Alarm and Big Country songs, just the two of them. And uh, those, uh, those recordings really are nice. It's a song called uh, Never Take Your Place. Last night I dreamed I saw you there I dreamed your eyes are blue And someone's hand upon your hair I dreamed I saw them too And not a word that I could say Or none that I could do Would ever make me look my way Or make me look on you Whip your dogs away from here There's no more oil and there's no more beer Whip your dogs away from here There's no more left to fear Push away boys, push away boys It's time we left this place And all the gold of Africa Could never take your place Some fool is hung around your neck And who around your waist Or was it all before we met And in some other place And not a word that I could say A thing that I could do Could ever make me look my way Or let me look on you Whip your dogs away from here There's no more oil and there's no more fear Whip your dogs away from here There's no more left to fear Push away boys, push away boys It's time we left this place And all the gold in Africa Could never take your place Yeah! Whip your dogs away from here There's no more oil and there's no more beer Whip your dogs away from here There's no more left to fear Push away boys, push away boys It's time we left this place 
And all the gold in Africa could never take your place. Push away, boys, push away, boys. It's time we left this place. And all the gold in Africa could never take your place. And all the gold in Africa could never take your place. And what, what, what's alarm stock? That, is that like the gathering? Is that the same thing as the gathering, or is that something different? Because I don't know whether that was the uh, you know the, the, the predecessor. Okay. Uh, I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure. No, I, I know they're up to gathering number twenty one. Oh my gosh! So. They are, uh, but uh, the gathering is always in January, and the alarm stock is in summer. So I guess they felt a year too long to wait. So they have a gathering and an alarm stock. It's really cool, isn't it? That's unbelievable. Yeah, I, I, just, I, I had my first, I had my first alarm stock. Uh, I'm sorry, the first gathering experience this year, uh, and it, it, it is. If you, if you do get a chance, it's, uh, wow. it's kind of a, you know, if you are a big Mike Peters, big uh, alarm fan, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a religious experience going mm. to the uh, Welsh homeland and having a, a, you know, a weekend of, uh, of uh, fun and frivolity uh, with the, uh, with the alarm. Shut! Let's move on to 2004, uh, which is interesting. Again, in April, saw the second Big Country Convention after Stewart's death, and that's in Dublin. So was Mike Peters there for that one? No, this was this was a Casbah Club uh, uh, thing at uh, at the time because uh, it was uh, Bruce and Mark uh, and uh, Josh Phillips, JJ uh, Gilmore from. Uh, from the silencers and uh, Bruce Foxen from from the jam. That was uh, the lineup of uh, Casbah Club at the time. Now, Tony didn't attend this one, did he? No, he, te- he attended the. Uh, we will get to. He attended the later one in uh, in December. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I guess you know we're, we're talking about the Casbah Club, so we should maybe mention them for a little bit. I mean, I got to admit, I'm I've heard some of the things they've done. I, I heard a little bit at the time. I'm, I don't feel at all knowledgeable enough about them to really assess what I think of them or, or that kind of thing. But I mean, Casbah club for, you know, some, it's, I think big country fans have a kind of a love hate relationship with it. Yeah. I am, but sometimes it may even bring a little more confusion to the, to the, to the table is that there was a, you know, personnel, you know, change, uh, and it's, it's, it's two different distinct sounds. So, you right. know, both, both of them good in their own right, but they yeah, were more like a straight ahead rock sound. I was, I recall, I mean, is that, do you think that's accurate? I mean, the Casbah club, Oh uh, yeah, I, you know, yeah, I would say that. Yeah. yeah okay.
I mean, they just struck me as like a good, you know, fun. They're, they're having, just having fun. I don't know how serious they took it. I mean, maybe they did, but I, I, I'm not exactly sure. I think I think it was more like kind of testing the waters. It's probably more serious than the other stuff they had done previously. Yeah. I would think. Yeah. yeah. And now, I mean, Simon Townsend became a part of that group later, but that was, was that in the same year? Do you think? No, 2004. I mean, do you know when he took over for uh, JJ Gilmore? I think. I think. Yeah. Uh, JJ Gilmore was with the band in 2004, and then. Uh, so, you know, JJ had had his projects, and Josh had his projects, and Simon came in, and they were a, a four piece, and starting in 2005. Okay. Uh, Any way she moves, I really like that with the Fields of Fire loop. of 2004 fish releases his fields of crows album which is interesting because bruce does not just play on the album but he co-wrote a whole bunch of uh, the material as well so he plays on the album and played on the following european tour uh, i don't know a whole lot about the album and uh, 
it's mainly interesting to uh, to mention because of Bruce's involvement and not just being a hired gun, but almost like a, a fellow comrade in arms in terms of writing and recording and, and all of that. So uh, that's another one for me to check out. There, there's plenty of stuff from these years that is totally unknown to me. If you're going to the fields of Crow, I strongly suggest you listen to the song The Rookie. time i used to always get confused because in america um there's a popular band called fish and and they're spelled it's spelled p-h-i-s-h and they're kind of like a grateful dead type of jam band and i remember yeah. i remember when the news came that bruce was playing with fish i was thinking wow he's joining this band fish you know I, and on one hand i was kind of glad for him because they were such a big band i mean they did huge numbers whenever they play live but i thought it was an odd choice but uh and then only later with a little bit of little bit more uh, research on my part, I realized it was a different fish entirely. Okay, so uh, that takes us to the big country convention in December of 2004, uh, which is notable uh, mainly for jamming coming in for the first time and playing with Bruce in public. I remember you telling me that um, when you saw that, John, that you were you, you thought he was good, but you know you weren't like blown away by his talent like, at that point. And it was, I mean, I mean it, Bruce and Jamie were in the stairwell of of this uh, of this uh, convention hall, uh, and rehearsing with uh, another again. It's probably you know a gentleman named Derek Dodds, a very big big country fan who's got a heck of a singing voice. I, I remember that name too. And yeah. uh, you know they're rehearsing playing in a big in a big country, and you know you know Bruce is out there you know tutoring Jamie on 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 the on the chords, and you know Jamie may be struggling a little bit, and you know and she's. And, and you know they eventually go out to the main stage and play for the um, play for the crowd and you know it, it, again you wouldn't know then I mean again much better guitar player than I'll ever be you know but from that point you know you, you wouldn't you wouldn't have known you would have turned into what you see now right yeah so I, I really only have one more question about the convention who was the the lead singer if you will for that one again that that uh, convention was also tied into a Casbah club show that was playing playing line with, with the jj gilmore he okay. he didn't perform that night basically um i i think would be the first iteration of bbw mm. it was the three of them uh playing uh playing playing a couple of songs oh, I think they that's played, very notable i believe they played one in a million and they played one great thing which is two songs that uh wow. you know you generally don't they played one in a million yeah wow, i would have loved to say that that's really surprising. Did they play it like an electric version or was it an acoustic? I believe it was, a, it was acoustic. acoustic. Okay. Yeah. Tony singing? Yes. Okay. Wow. That's interesting. What an interesting song choice. Yes. I think we'll move into the next one now, 2005, which uh, starts off with, uh, again, Tony releasing Life Goes On. Uh, 
which came out of the blue at the time for me. Uh, I was, I, I must have still have kept up uh, with what Tony was doing. And I, for some reason, I have all of his stuff, and I have no idea what Mark did. I have no idea what Bruce did. So, you know, I'm sorry. It's a, it, no conscious thing, but. Uh, well, I, I, you know, just 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 from from my perspective, I really don't know if I would call it out of the blue because at the Zendam convention, he he kept mentioning about his uh. You know about his his next album. I think he remarks, "Oh, my next album, if I if I ever get it done." So so yeah. so from December of 2002 to the spring of 2005 is uh is is, is uh, I guess how long it took to to get that complete. And that that album, uh, I mean, we're we're past the point of uh, the Great Unknown, which is his first solo album, which came out uh, in the 90, late 90s, I guess. But um, this album, I, I I've listened to only recently for the first time. I mean, I I'd heard bits and pieces like Dream Boy, but uh, that, this, this album, I think, was better produced even than Great Unknown. I think I like, I think I like the songs on the Great Unknown better overall. But there, there's a lot of good production elements of this. I mean, you could see that Tony was, was really growing as a as an engineer slash producer, and and you know his, his musicianship really shines through on here too. I mean, there's like every song, there there are so many different influences that come through on these songs. I mean, uh, like the Beatles, we've got Led Zeppelin in certain songs, we've got the Who in certain songs. It's a, it's an interesting album. on is uh, you know like the title says it's a bit you know post Stuart's death a lot more reflective a lot more emotional uh, the songs are are very heavy very heavy stuff uh, no one knows my name extremely heavy very personal and uh, the mood is much more subdued uh, it's uh, it's less lively but that doesn't mean it's you know worse it's just a very different mood it's a very more reflective album very much so and, uh, you know, if I continue to be part of this podcast, we will for sure make a Tony Butler episode down the road. So uh, I'm not going to go too deep into this album, but it was a very interesting album at the time. Very inspired by Stuart, inspired by the way that life changed after his death. Uh, he focused less on music. He, he went into production, but uh, by this time, I think he was uh, even started with teaching. And uh, eventually he left the music business for a little while there. So... Uh, I don't know if that is what the title means. Life goes on. It, uh, you know, it, it goes on after Stuart died. It, it, it will go on after I leave this, uh, the music business. A lot of potential meanings there, and yeah. I think we'll save that discussion for for the Tony show. Right. Well, one thing I'll add um, about it that I think is interesting. I mean, you know, some some of the tunes I like, some of them I don't. You know, I'll be honest. But like like you say, we'll talk about that later when we talk about it. But um, he comments on one of the songs on the album called Not Supposed to Love You, and it gives a little bit of insight on what he had been doing at the time because I read this on the on the YouTube uh, clip for this song, and I, I went there. It, it's, I, I have to admit it's like it was probably my least favorite song on the album, but then when I read his description of it, it became probably the most heartwarming song on the album because he says uh, – suppo- is, these are Tony's words here. 
He says, not supposed to love you is, for me, is a really kind of heartwarming story. While I decided to give this music business a break, I decided to get into something that was really going to turn my head and pay attention into something else and maybe use different parts of my brain. I decided to go into education, and I got a job teaching in a school for people, for kids who had either been rejected or thrown out or just didn't fit in or whatever. But there was this one student, this young girl, who I wouldn't say that she had a problem or, or was disturbed because when she spoke, she was always quite lively and bright. But obviously there was something in the background. But I gave her the opportunity to try and write a song because she didn't believe that people like her were allowed to do stuff like that. So I told her to write some lyrics, and I put some chords to it. So that became the song that he put on his album, um, this song called Not Supposed to Love You, which is really you know, a very sweet story and gives you a lot of info into the kind of person that Tony is. They told me that I'm not supposed to love you Say I'm not supposed to love you All right, so we move on to 2006, and um, I actually have a story for this one because we've got Four Good Men, uh, and John John has lots of stories about this. Um, Four Good Men is, was a band uh, that was put together with uh, Bruce Watson and Derek Forbes. Is that his name, John? Yeah, Derek Forbes. Yeah, Derek Forbes and Mick McNeil. Okay. Uh, both actually, you know, ex-Simple Minds. They were and, from like the first incarnation of Simple Minds, right? Yes. Okay. And they're, they're currently touring together uh, as ex-Simple Minds. And Four Good Men was a a band that uh, actually, surprisingly, I mean, they did a tour, a, a small tour of America. Which, yes, I believe that's uh, where you, you and I first uh, encountered each other. Exactly. I met John for the first time at one of their shows in Virginia at a place called Jam and Java, which is a great little place to see uh, all kinds of good music. But I remember it always struck me when I saw them. I, I was like kind of mad because I thought, how could a band like Four Good Men tour America and Big Country never did since the Buffalo Skinners. I mean, I realize it was a it was a moot point at that point, but I mean, it, it just made me angry that, you know, they couldn't have toured America like Four Good Men did for Why the Long Face or for, you know, anything they'd done. But anyway, that's another story. But so yeah, Four Good yeah. Men, I mean, the show, uh, some interesting tidbits from the show that I remember. First of, first of all, it was the first time I'd seen, uh, you know, any member of Big Country since I saw them in Nashville. Uh, on what what's turned out to be the last big country show on American soil. But um, so it was really cool for, to go and see Bruce. And I remember meeting Bruce before the show. He was sitting outside the venue and kind of holding court with a few big country fans. It, it was a very interesting show. Um, obviously, the highlights for me were the were the big country moments. I mean, they played in a big country. And one thing that struck me is before the show, I was talking to the bartender there who was just a young kid. I mean, he was like in his early 20s. And he said, so he when said, did you get so old that somebody in their 20s is a young kid. Yeah, I know. I know. It's exactly. But he said, you know, so I hear someone from this band is was in a band called Big Country. Right. And I said, yeah. And he and he said, I hope they play the song in a big country. That is such an incredible song. And it just struck me, you know, how enduring that song is. And if, sometimes for better or worse for us big country fans. But, you know, even young kids still still know that song. And uh and love it but um and of course they played and it was great and one of the enduring memories for me was the suit bruce was wearing it was uh it was like the scottish flag right it was the, like, the uh the lion rampant the uh yellow suit with the uh lion rampant scottish yeah. flag on it um yeah it's, it's uh it, it's been referred to as the suit yeah it was a great suit he looked very cool 
and uh, Bruce was the guitarist, obviously, and and uh, they did some Simple Mind stuff, and you know, all, again, kind of like the Casbah Club, they did songs that each guy was associated with, and um, I mean, they, they did have you know some original songs that they played. They did. Yeah. Um, the one song that yeah that that evolved from uh, Bruce Watson demo was a song called Heart of Wonder. I mean, do you know if they were like a, just like a one-off thing the whole time? Or well, no, they... I, I think I think it started off as uh, as uh, a brainchild of Derek Forbes. Okay, uh, you know, obviously with him and him and Mick, and again, like like a lot of these other you know, other acts we've spoken about, it just you know just a vehicle for guys to get out there, have yeah. fun, and you know play play music for people who want to hear it. Yeah. All right, so I mean, let's move into 2007, which when which is a huge year for uh, big country and and a and kind of a huge stepping stone year for what we've got now. I don't know if we should talk just briefly about uh, the 30th anniversary of uh, the Skids. I believe they played three shows. They played three shows. They played uh, two quote warm-up shows at the Glen Pavilion in Dunfermline, and then uh, they finished off with uh, a set at Tea in the Park, which is a uh, huge uh, summer festival in. in Scott, man, what a great triumphant moment that was. I mean, uh, we'll talk about the big country moments here too, obviously. But I love the Skids and always have loved the Skids, and and I was very tentative about that because, I mean, Stuart, I mean Stuart and Richard Jobson obviously were the Skids, but Stuart was the only guitar player in that band, and it was so distinctive. And obviously, having Bruce, knowing that Bruce was going to do it, it was was soothing because I wouldn't want anyone else to do it. And then knowing that Jamie was going to help him, that kind of was cool. Even though I'd never heard Jamie play before, but I thought that was kind of sweet. You know, his son was playing, and it was yeah. kind of, it's kind of a nod to Stewart too. Like we need two guitarists to pull off what this guy did. You know. Well, I think it was a, a little more than sweet. And then we had we had spoken prior to this um, about this, and I'll just kind of briefly go back backwards to to uh, the Four Good Men. Yeah. Uh, they had played a show in Glasgow uh, shortly before New Year's in 2006. Uh, and, and, you know, and during the show, uh, there was a, a part where Derek Forbes had brought his son on stage and Bruce had brought Jamie on stage. And, you know, they were, you know, jamming uh, you know, to a song. And, you know, I was, you know, oh, you know Jamie's you know, decent guitar players. You know, it was fun for what it's worth. They really, didn't really think much of it. And then, you know, as the months went on and heard about this, this uh, Skids reunion and, uh, you know, that Jamie was playing, I was like, huh, OK, then. Uh, but. Yeah, you know, I, I I was kind of curious to, you know, to see because I you know obviously the having Bruce play was 
fairly intuitive, I would say. Right. Uh, but I went to the show at the Glen Glen Pavilion, and I remember, you know, that they played the first uh, couple of songs, and uh, I was just amazed by how much Jamie's guitar playing had progressed in just under under six months. Mm. I, I was I was there with a. a, a a uh, friend of mine from from Scotland, Gordon Smith, uh, who uh, people who frequent the Big Country Board are uh, probably very familiar with. And I texted him, and I, I could see him from. I, I was on one side of the uh, of, of the venue; he was on the other side. And I'm, I'm texting him. I was like, "Oh, this this boy's been practicing." <laughs> <laughs> you could tell. I mean, I was really impressed with him, and and it was the first time I'd ever seen him play. And and uh, the, those aren't some easy. Those aren't easy parts, you know, from the skid songs. I mean, the skids being a punk band, you think without having great knowledge of them you think oh punk band punk music relatively easy bar chords power chords whatever but Stuart was awesome in, in those days sometimes I, I I almost prefer that sound that he had then because it was just so cutting and and you know it was great but Bruce and Jamie did a fantastic job and and uh, Richard Jobson I mean he seemed to be he seems to have become humbled with age to some degree I mean I, I, I wasn't I, I, there I, when skids were at their heyday, so I don't know, you know, what it was like when he was supposedly went off the deep end with his uh, artistic uh, inclinations. But well, the way I, I kind of saw like the the skids in two thousand seven uh, playing again, you, you know, categorize them as, as a uh, as a punk band. I've I've seen some other uh, bands that you know were of that era uh, playing, you know, today, and they're still trying to. You'll move about like they're 17 years old. Mm. Uh, the way I, I, I saw the skids as punk growing old gracefully. A song called The Olympian. Yeah. 
but I, I think it would be kind of remiss. I think both you and I, being uh, Americans, kind of like what uh, you know how uh, this country played a role in the in the skids yeah. in the skids. Uh, we can't miss that. Uh, basically, for those of you uh, who aren't familiar with it, uh, I mean, during that time, the, the city of New Orleans uh, was still suffering the aftermath of, of Hurricane Katrina, and the main sports venue in, in uh, New Orleans is the Superdome, and they are uh, their, the team that plays there is New Orleans Saints. And uh, that night, they reopened the stadium. It was, again, a celebra- pretty much a celebration that the city of New Orleans, hey, we're back. Mm-hmm. And uh, U2 and Green Day, they're performed, and they performed The Saints Are Coming. And, uh, I, I, Tom, I don't, I don't know about you, but I know uh, I had to do a lot of explaining to people who were trying to tell me. It's like, oh, you two and, and Green Day, <laughs> they're playing this great new song. Right. And trying to explain to people, no, it's not a new song. And trying to give them the backstory mm-hmm. about, like, you know, okay, who, who the person, who, you know, who the people were involved who wrote that song. And, you know, and, and hopefully giving them some inroads to skids and in, into big country. And I know you two gets a lot of grief from, from big country fans. Uh, you know, but let's be honest. I mean, the Edge is obviously a big Stewart fan. You can hear the influence in his playing, especially his early playing. And and it was the Edge who wanted to do that song. So I mean, uh, he always loved the Skids. The Skids were a big influence on him, and that was a really important song to get the Skids back together and to give a lot of uh, good attention to Stuart Adamson. So props to the Edge. about this about those shows the last thing i'll say about it is um you know big country fans also often cite those backup singers during the peace in our time tour Ah. as being like the worst moment for big country as a live entity you know having those two backup singers and i would have to agree with that in a lot of ways you know there's nothing like seeing two uh overdressed or underdressed girls dancing in unison to thousand yard stare you know singing the backgrounds to that song now that wasn't the case with the skids with the skids show exactly the the skids had backup singers who were great singers and man i just loved it i loved the way it sounded richard jobson's brother yeah okay wow yes and the other one is a uh lovely young woman named jane button who also had done some work with the the four good men men, yep and uh again if, if if you've ever heard her if you can, if you can just uh, uh, hear her voice 
by itself it's 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 uh it, it's mm. it's fantastic i remember uh the first night in the Glen pavilion uh the skids played a cover version of a, a sensational alex harvey band song called vambo and um uh and jane was doing the backing vocals on it and i, I remember i was like oh my God, mm-hmm. and uh, there's just another another good friend of mine name name of uh, name of Willie that uh, I, I I caught the eye of, and we were, we were just looking at it, just like this is this is amazing. Okay, so obviously that was a huge thing for Stuart Adamson fans and big country fans, even the skids. But you know, it, for from a big country perspective, nothing could could top what happened in July of 2007. A mere mere two weeks after the skids. Yeah, there you go. Like two weeks after the skids thing, you know, nobody really saw it coming, but necessarily, I I know I didn't. But big country actually got together again as a three piece and did a tour. Yeah, like uh, most of these things, I did become aware of it after the fact. Uh, I think uh, it was when the 25 Live CD came out, uh, but that was still not too far after. So uh, had to check it out, had to see what it was, and uh, find out it, it was actually a three-piece with mostly Tony singing, a bit of Bruce as well. But uh, uh, I uh, I want to read a little bit of the liner notes because all the three guys contribute to those liner notes and I think they really say a lot. And uh, I'm going to start just with a quote by Tony who says, uh, it would have been the stuff of fairy tales if we, big country, could have celebrated 25 years of being together as the lineup that first played together in the basement studios of Phonogram Records. After Stuart's passing, I firmly believed that the band would and could never play again. Turning my back on the music business, I consigned former glories, memories, and collected paraphernalia to the darkest places I could find. To find Bruce, Mark, and myself playing again, writing, recording, and having fun doing it was something I never thought would happen. I know we have all had to find the courage to do this, and we are spurred on because we feel that this is a fitting tribute to a lost friend. Uh, Although the last six of these 25 years were barren and silent, it was still a part of the story. Being in this group was and is a human experience, and it's taken us all this time to be able to do what is represented in this live recording. So, so again, I think he's very honest there. He says, uh, you know, what he says doesn't shock me at all. Uh, of the three uh, surviving members, Tony is the one that uh, sort of ran for the hills a bit, or sort of put the country aside, you know, as he mentions here, in the darkest corners he could find. Um, looking elsewhere, looking at, you know, 
Great Western Records and producing, but ultimately just leaving music totally behind. Whereas Mark is always going to play. Um, I think he's never really had a family life to speak of. So when one project ends, another one begins, and that's never stopped. And uh, and as we see from this timeline, Bruce has always uh, stayed busy as well. There's quite a few projects and bands and albums coming out from Bruce every year, uh, much more than that than I was aware of, really. So uh, the one that had to come around to doing this clearly was Tony, first and foremost. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to read a whole lot of line notes, but uh, Mark touches on this, saying that I had been asked to work on an album with Fish. Bruce had co-written the songs with him, and I was very pleased to be working with Bruce again. Bruce and I had developed into an amazing player. I had never really heard him in this capacity outside Big Country. His songwriting was strong, and so very Bruce Watson. I wondered what if those songs had been directed into Big Country. Bruce had come of age... Uh, through pure survival, and if you like, singing for his supper. Stuart would be proud of him. Uh, Tony was now a music teacher and was on a very different journey. So I put these thoughts of getting together again down to dreaming. Although I tried a few projects with Bruce, nothing would come close to the thought of it becoming big country again. Tony had invited me to his party in Cornwall. He performed with his family and his music students, and he totally blew me away. His family was not only extremely talented, but I was watching one of the finest bass players in the country. Tony invited me up to play in a big country, and for me, that is when both Tony and myself knew we needed to work together again with Bruce as a three-piece. And I'm not going to read all of Bruce's uh, notes. They, they confirm a lot of uh, what Tony and Mark is saying. The, they, they really came together at this from three different directions. Uh, Bruce makes a point out of uh, the fan interest and uh, how encouraging that was to them. So uh, I'm sure they were very unsure about doing this. This was not a given at any point that it would happen. And I think without fan support, it might not have happened. That's the impression that uh, they give. And uh, Bruce talks also in the liner notes about having to not just relearn guitar parts, but integrate Stewart's parts. And uh, that's probably the most interesting part of the album that resulted from the tour. You listen to how it's rearranged to suit a three-piece. And, uh, of course, from what we're used to, there's holes in the music. It, it isn't what it is, but you have to, I think, rethink the entire approach. Well, I, I think when you start comparing it to the original four-piece, you're, you're, you're really it's, – it's, it's not a fair comparison. Uh, yeah, you, you look at the three-piece kind of on its own merits, and you, know, and, 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 uh, you kind, of, kind of pretend to have never heard the other songs before, at least, uh, at least momentarily, and says, okay, this is, this, this is, this is a good three-piece band. Yeah, exactly, and that—that's exactly what I where I was headed. So, so that's really. Uh, Oop, I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Then it's fine. No, no, no. Uh, it's it, that, that's exactly the mindset that that this is a different band, but it's like Tony says when they first go out, and and this is really an emotion, uh, emotional moment for me. They go out on stage, and Tony starts saying, "Good evening, Bristol." We're still called Big Country. That's the album, really. That, that attitude is the entire album. They, they sort of, they, they soldier through it. And uh, it's very clear that there's, you know, someone is missing. Someone is missing there. And nobody for a second forgets about that throughout the album. And uh, it's really a, a, a lot about how they approach the music. And uh, you hear Tony sometimes play 
lines that used to be the lead melodic lines on guitar are placed on bass. This is clearly a, an experiment more than uh, the next Big Country live album. This is the teacher.
something that you said's fine. Just just kind of popped into my head, and obviously that 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 a person's missing, and and uh, having seen some of the shows on on that on that uh, 25th anniversary tour, and even the uh, you know current big country shows, uh, it, it's a, it's a very subtle thing, uh, and they do mention it from time to time, but uh, how the band is performs on stage where mm-hmm. Stewart would have stood always remains empty and that's yeah. that's that's kind of like an ongoing tribute you know yeah. to 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 his to his memory my feelings on this whole thing are split it's like and and i have to explain what i mean the actual act of what they did and and what it took to do that and then the need for them to have done that to get to where they are today is is uh inspiring to me Mm -hmm. it's it's something that means a lot to me and and like i said when i saw the the actual footage uh i was choked up you know i was really moved by that um but but then when you take when you take the album itself and you're listening to the album as a document eventually for me that album becomes a little bit removed from the circumstances in which it was recorded if that makes sense and it's like and eventually you look at the album on its own merits and and i'm not thinking about what was going through their minds at the time and what was going through the minds of me as a fan. And, um, and, you know, so I have to be honest. I mean, for me, the sound of the album is not something that I enjoy listening to. And, and that's for, I mean, and I, I can't say that I don't enjoy anything because as fine said, there's some really interesting arrangements that they did. Um, you could, I enjoy it from the perspective of the, the amount of work that they had to put into it to, to even adapt these songs to a three piece. But, the one thing that stands out to me about the album is that it just seems like after the time has passed from the the period when it was performed and you're just looking at it for for its own merits it's the album feels like too much work to me i mean it seems like they're really trying so hard with every song to 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 play the songs it doesn't seem really uh natural i guess and free flowing and it, and it shouldn't have been i mean because it was a, a whole new experience and it was something totally different and I got to say, you know, for me, I've talked to you, I've mentioned this before, but I'm just, I'm not a big fan of Tony's voice. And as much as I love Tony, and it pains me to say anything negative about Tony because he's one of my favorite musicians of all time. And, you know, he's an incredible bassist and I love his background vocals. But again, this gets back to me being split. It's like I, I admire the fact that he did what he did. And I, I find it a very noble thing that he did and that the band did to go out by themselves. But, listening to the that cd is nothing i would ever listen to for enjoyment i would i would never get in the car and put in that cd and say oh i gotta hear 25 live and hear this song it's only something i would listen to out of this is interesting or it's interesting to see these arrangements because uh, quite frankly i just don't think tony's voice is suited to a lot of these songs and it doesn't sound good to me and um so that's how i look at this album it's like i look at where it sprung and i'm inspired and i'm moved but then I look at the the way it sounds, and I'm and I think, okay, I understand why they did this, but they really need someone else in this band well, if they're going to yeah, continue. Yeah, I think like, like you said, I think there, there there are various opinions as to the quality of of the uh, of the album, but uh, I think the one thing that these big country fans can agree upon is that it, it's still an important yes, an important release, no doubt. Uh, it had to happen. Yes. Yeah, very important, and uh, I think. Uh, uh, in terms of, you know, I think I where where you are now, Tom, some time ago, 
because like I said, I've recently come around to the album and I've actually listened to it and liked it for what it is, but I don't think I separate it quite as much as you do from the circumstances. Uh, when I listen to this, I, I, I get that choked up feeling and uh, uh, I can hear sort of the guys trying their best hard on the sleeve. And I think part of the problem with someone other than Stuart singing is that it's someone other than Stuart singing. So nobody would really have been that great. You know, we're always going to want, you know, Stuart is the optimal, anyone else is less. So so that's what they have to cope with. Uh, I think, uh, and we're probably going to get into this uh, at the appropriate juncture, but uh, with Bruce and Tony, I think Bruce is a good rock singer, whereas Tony sings the more evocative stuff wonderfully, wonderfully. So stuff like The Teacher, I think Tony is right on the money there. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I get what you're saying there, but I mean, and I understand totally, you know, that if it's not the whole idea that if it's not Stuart, you're always going to be saying it's not as good. But literally for me, it, it's just it's not that case, the case of that at all. I mean, because I love Mike Peters voice and I love his singing with the band, um, even though I miss Stuart. For me, it's just a personal thing where I just I don't I just don't there's something about the quality of Tony's voice that doesn't strike me as being a lead, a great lead singer. So uh, we can move on to 2008 and look at the same three piece doing original material and seeing how that compares, you know, 25 Live being big country material for the most part, uh, BBW being original material. Uh, and uh, once again, with the release, we have some wonderful liner notes. Uh, this time they confused me. And uh, if you look at some of the liner notes from 25 Live that I didn't read loud, they speak of having written five or so songs together and they sound great and they should write some more and make an album. One year later, you have BBW in our name, the album that the three guys made, and they still have those five songs. Clearly, they didn't write more. So these are the songs they had the year earlier. And uh, the, the liner notes are sort of all over the place. I'll start with Mark this time. He is extremely positive. And he says, this is a band that I not only feel extremely proud to be part of, but continue to do so and truly feel that this CD shows there is so much more to give musically between the three of us. So very much positive and uh, the first stepping stone towards a more permanent thing. And uh, you read Tony saying that after Bruce, Mark and I had rehearsed a few times to prepare for the 25th anniversary gig, I've taken a more keen interest in some songs I've been writing, songs I really had no ambition for. Playing with the guys made me refocus on them, and I began hearing them with new ears. A time so wild became my tribute to the heyday of Big Country, a time when we all really enjoyed what we were doing and the fruits of our reason for being a group. Then the three of us started jamming on new stuff, and I felt the old creative juices flowing again. Coming back together to put the finished ideas in a live band form was the closest thing to exciting I believe we all have felt since making Driving to Damascus. Bruce... Uh, mentions a lot of what we talked about already. He mentions how they kept the stage positions the same they always did and center stage empty on purpose, explains really how 25 Alive came about. Uh, and he ends with, uh, it was great meeting fans who traveled from all over the world to attend the shows. These will never happen again. But as I've learned from experience, there's always something around the corner, uh, which had me puzzled. Never happen again? The, the, the one thing I, I, t I took away, you know, from that album, and I know a lot of people, you know, uh, were a little, little uh, skeptical of Tony's uh, singing abilities. 
Uh, I think it came out a lot better on this. If if, not, if for nothing else, uh, these songs were written for his voice. Mm. So and then, uh, you know, yeah, accepting the one that uh, that Bruce song. And I think that's true. I mean, you can definitely see that that shows here. Um, I'm still not a huge fan of it either way, but I think it's a lot better on this release. Um, I guess, you know, I'll, we'll talk a little bit about this release and I'll just lead off on it. But, uh, I mean, it, it's when I first heard that they were, they were doing this, I was really excited and, you know, I still, I, I like some of these tunes. I mean, there's some interesting ideas here. It's, it's definitely not very big reminiscent of big country in, in most respects, as far as the big country that, you know, that I liked or started to like, it, it's, it's more like it's kind of more like on the air type styles almost to me like they, I, never, I never thought of that but i could see i could see where you're, where yeah, you're going with that it's like i always view tony as being a more progress tony being more like a progressive type of of uh of guy like he's even on his own albums it's like a lot of the music that he that he writes is more got more of a progressive rock type of feel at times and he certainly is good with melody and, and he's got a lot of good melodies but other times he goes into chord progressions and things that I'm personally not a huge fan of because it's more got like a progressive feel. And, and the single is, is kind of an example of that for me. I mean, um, what, what's it called again? It's striking. You lift me up. You lift me up. Yes. You lift me up. You can't call that song progressive though. If you call that progressive, then you're uber sensitive to progressiveness. No, it, I'm not calling this song progressive, but I think the progressive influences are there is what I'm saying. It, it's like, it, it, it's not like it's yes or anything like that, but or King Crimson or something, but it, it's it's got those it's got those uh, overtones to it that come through at times. I mean, I, it's like I can hear those I can hear those influences. Um, so it probably won't come as a surprise to you that Hope and Waterloo is my favorite track on this. Water. 
I've really come to like Bruce's voice quite a bit. I I like uh, I like the feel of his voice. I like the the rawness of his voice. Um, kind of has a almost like a Shane McGowan type of from the Pogues feel to it. Uh, you know, much more. Uh, I've heard it described as Bob Dylan esque. Yes, very Bob Dylan esque. And uh, I made a post recently. I thought it was like Bob Dylan when he could actually enunciate and you could understand what he was saying. So. I mean, musically, the, the band sounds great, as always. I mean, Mark sounds awesome. Tony sounds awesome musically. Some interesting arrangements. But overall, it's it's not something that I really, you know, hold in high regard from a musical musical uh, perspective. I mean, I like Hope and Waterloo, but even that, I would think, would be like a, a B-country, B-side quality. So I'm glad that they did it. Um, I know there's there's a lot of talk about whether it should have been called big country or bbw um and there are reasons for for that personally i'm kind of glad it's called bbw because to me it doesn't reflect i mean, and i know that you know big country should be allowed to evolve and change whatever they're going to change into but to me that i don't feel i don't feel big country in this release i feel like it is more suited to being called bbw and because it's these three guys whereas it's strange though because like with mike and the writing that they're doing with him I definitely hear Big Country, and it feels like Big Country, but for some reason, this album does not feel that way to me. So <laughs> I think I like it a little more than you. I think my favorite song is uh, In My Name. I think that's a stellar song, the, the, the slow build-up, the atmosphere, and uh, that's a song where Tony really comes into his right as a singer. It really, it's made for his voice. It really makes those kind of songs work, really. That, that's uh, Those kind of songs he, he really pulls off. It's a little less effective on stuff like Time So Wild and You Lift Me Off, but I still like those uh, as well. Particularly You Lift Me Off. I think the remixes didn't quite manage to ruin it for me, mainly because those songs don't go on my on my MP3 player. It's a good EP. I'm, I'm really glad I had it. Uh, I've um, liked the 25 Live. I've gotten more into it uh, recently over the last couple of months. I've been getting into this three-piece and sort of the barren years. and. Uh, it really starts with those guys. I mean, the, the one thing I'll, I'll, I'll say about, about the uh, about the album and pretty much the song uh, in my name, you're you're kind of talking about how how it had a haunting feel, and I, I think where it gets a haunting feel is is Mark Brzezicki and his background vocals, mm. and it kind of it kind of kind of sets that kind of really kind of eerie eerie kind of tone where you can almost kind yeah. of like you know see yourself like in the, in, the, in the middle of the desert. It You know, Mark Mark doesn't get a lot of credit, and he he does some great background vocals. I mean, he he really has a talk about a range. He's got like yeah. almost like a British choir boy feel to I, his I, voice. Again, for, for, I mean, 
you know, for a person, you wouldn't expect a, a, a boy, it's like that coming out of a person that large. Exactly, yeah. yeah. He's really great, and I think uh, the diehards know it and appreciate it. And uh, whenever they play the Storm live, you know, you good old Mark, what, what would the song be without his backing vocals? You know, 2009, we really saw a lot of output from Bruce Watson and Jamie Watson and a uh, ton of stuff that they put out. Um, he released an, a CD called The Porter Studio Diaries where, interestingly, you'll actually find the beginnings of some of the songs that Big Country are doing now with Mike Peters and have shaped into some new Big Country songs. But, uh, yeah, I mean, as, as Fine has said, both of these guys, Tony and Bruce, deserve – pretty much their own shows dealing with their their own work so we're not going to really talk much about it in detail at least on this episode but um personally i would encourage you to to check out a lot of bruce's stuff because i've really um just kind of discovered it i mean i've always known it's out there but i've really started to listen to it a lot more lately and really some great stuff on there and some great live shows uh one of the highlights for me is uh, acoustic version of angle park Guess what it is yet? Statues grim. Ain't Angle Park, the 
fountains quack in Angle Park. In Angle Park, lights are dim, the statues grim. In Angle Park, the fountains quack in Angle Park. liner note that Svein read earlier from Mark about Bruce coming into his own, I think he really has, and I think you can really see this, his songwriting strengths on a lot of these releases, and, and you can also see a lot of what he meant to the band when Big Country were in their heyday, that maybe he didn't get some of the credit he probably deserved from a songwriting perspective, from a playing perspective, so, you know, we had a ton of releases in, in 2009 from Bruce and Jamie, we had more in 2010, like Svein said at the beginning, we, we kind of went into this thinking this was the barren wilderness years of, of big country, the remaining members, and it's really anything but. I mean, there's a ton of stuff you know out here to, to listen to and um, a lot of great stuff to discover. So hopefully some of the things we've mentioned will, will spur you on to check out some of this stuff if you haven't already. So next time we are going to um, maybe talk a little bit briefly about 2009, 2010, what Bruce and Jamie were up to, and then leading into – the state of big country today with Mike Peters and what he's brought to the band and uh, from a perspective of both the live shows that they've been doing and a lot of the new stuff that they've been doing that they've debuted at at, uh, a lot of their shows. So we'll be checking that out. In the meantime, uh, please let us know what you think of this episode. Just go to our Facebook page, the great divide or email us at bigcountrypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And uh, John, uh, seriously, thank you so much for being on the show. And John's going to come back next time, too, because, as I said, he's he has attended every big country show since 2002. Oh, that you were, you're overstating <laughs> it. I would mention before that I'd been at the gathering yeah. uh, this earlier in the year. And um, somebody had come up to me and you know, I guess I'd see me at a lot of shows. And he says, says, says uh, John, you're from America. Do you get back there much? <laughs> great yeah seriously yeah john's has been to a lot of shows and we can only envy him but uh it's great that he's he's come on the show with us and shared some of his perspectives and he'll do that he'll do more of that next time and um it should be interesting so thanks so much for listening and i'll leave it to Svein to give his closing thoughts and send us out so Svein, over to you in norway yeah so this is like jerry springer's final thought um, yeah, it's. Uh, you are the dad. <laughs> I'm just gonna say that you are not the father, <laughs> but I am. Uh, no, it's it's really been a 
a strange episode in some ways because it feels like we're just glossing over so much that really when we started uh, thinking we got to cover these years we got to look at what happened and uh you know every time we, we turn around there's a new release and uh, something we didn't know about and another thing to listen to and uh hopefully we mentioned a whole bunch of them so that you can check them out uh and uh you know i know i have more stuff to listen to still but at least i'm aware of most of it now until john brings something else up so uh one thing also to say if people think we haven't covered mark in great detail that's correct we haven't uh there are limits to even john's uh <laughs> thing there but i think we, we covered all the mark stuff that he's played with all the other guys but uh, maybe maybe there's even reason to do a mark show and do some close studying and find out everything he's ever played on you know how about that for uh, ambition I'll let you research that one. Yeah, the, uh, I can do that easily. Now, so so I hope uh, hopefully we have covered these years a bit, and uh, some areas will be uh, dissected a bit more in the future. And next episode, we'll start looking at the Mike Peters era, and that should uh, be really interesting, as that's really what's going on. So we will be talking next time. Unfortunately, John will be in his undisclosed uh, lair. He won't be in the studio this time, but uh, it should be another interesting podcast. So. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We're sorry we took a little bit longer this time, but uh, hopefully you've all caught up to the other episodes. If you haven't, just go to that site we keep mentioning, bigcountryinfo.com, and you can stream the shows. You can download them there, and hopefully very soon we will have them up on iTunes as well. So uh, we will keep you posted on that. So thanks again, and we will see you next time. Mm